Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So I can only thank you so much, guys, for the the last little while. I know it's been a rough time kind of going on with what's happening out there. And I know the, the listenership has gone mental uh, since lockdown. I've been trying to put out two episodes a week. And I'm very grateful for everyone who shared it up on their stories, all the comments and the feedback through DMs and texts and stuff like that. So thank you so much for doing that. So the next guest that I have is Maeve Hannon. So Maeve is known as Dietetically Speaking on Instagram. So I have been, I have a short list of kind of nutritionists, dietitians that I've always wanted to get on and Maeve was on, was on the list. So Maeve is a consultant dietitian. She graduated with the first class BSc honors in dietetics from the University of Ulster, Coleraine. She's a health writer, foodie, founder of dietetically and Nutrimote. I had to watch my D4 accent there. Uh, and very passionate about spreading evidence-based nutrition messages. So Maeve, thank you so much for giving up your time today to come on. Well, thanks for having me. How are we holding up? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I think like everyone, just taking things day by day. Yeah, it's 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 so weird. Um, so for anyone that isn't aware of your story, can you tell us how you kind of got into this whole field um, and a little bit more information on kind of what your messages, your grand speaking messages? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, I've always had an interest in food and nutrition. And then when I was trying to figure out like, what would I do for my career, I was mainly trying to decide between would I be a teacher or would I go into something nutrition related or maybe psychology. Um, and then when I found out that dietitian was an option, it kind of combined all of those things together. It was like communication, it was nutrition, you know, it, it links in with psychology as well. Um, so that seemed pretty perfect for me. So then I went to university in Ulster, as you mentioned, in Coleraine. Um, and then I worked for about five years over in the NHS in, in Sunderland. So I kind of lived between Newcastle and Sunderland in the Northeast. Um, that was great. I got really good experience there. So I worked as a general dietitian. So I was in the hospital and lots of different wards. I was doing outpatient clinics and um, doing groups for heart health and that kind of thing. Um, then I was a stroke specialist dietitian, so that was working in the hospital after patients had had a stroke and then also visiting them at home. Um, and then I was a pediatric dietitian, so that was anything from you know newborn babies up to teenagers and most of the nutritional issues that can occur along the way. And then for the past about two to three years, I've been working as a freelance dietitian. Um, so we went traveling, myself and my partner, um, we went about two years ago, um, so we went to Japan and we went to America and Southeast Asia um, and basically my partner works as a web developer so he could work while we travelled um, so at that time I made this, the switch over to kind of work online and um, set up as a freelance and yeah I've mainly continued with that ever since um, so I also covered Orla Walsh's maternity cover last year so that brought me back to Ireland um, that was great experience. Um, and then for the past few months, um, I'm back to working mainly online, well, fully online at the moment. Um, and I work with clients one-to-one. Um, I do consultancy for companies. Um, and I'm a health writer, as you mentioned. Um, so I've got lots of different things going on. Busy, busy. It's always good to be busy than kind of idle and stuff like that because it is, it is a tough industry. Um, it's it's a rewarding industry as well though so it's kind of taking you over to the UK it's taking you back here as well which is great um, I think one of those things that kind of 
comes up an awful lot from working with people on a daily basis is the talk of kind of fruit and veg fiber all that kind of stuff comes up and that a lot of people aren't getting enough even though when we're told as a kid to kind of have like your five a day or whatever it was back then a lot of people kind of forget about that kind of side of things with their food and then they kind of wonder why they're feeling a little bit lethargic why they're feeling a little bit blocked up can you kind of talk about the benefits of kind of fiber and kind of where the kind of the decent sources of fiber and kind of the for people who are potentially a little bit more uh kind of financially restricted kind of the cheaper options that kind of people could go for yeah absolutely and i think that's such a good place to start because for most of us it's one of the best nutritional focuses that we can have because 80 percent of people in ireland don't eat enough fiber and there are just so many health benefits so it's the main food for our gut bacteria um, and then by having a big diversity of different plants different sources of fiber that helps us to have a good diversity of gut bacteria it also helps to bulk and soften our stools so reducing the risk of constipation and it helps to encourage the movement of the gut as well and the production of uh, these short chain fatty acids in the gut which helps to keep the cells in the gut healthy and um, so for all of those reasons having a good intake of fiber is associated with a lower risk of bowel cancer um, it's also filling and satisfying and certain types of fiber then um, can help to kind of mop up the LDL cholesterol in our body and um, so it can help with maintaining healthy cholesterol levels um, it can help with stabilizing blood glucose levels and um, so that helps with energy levels um, and especially for people who have diabetes or issues with their blood sugar levels and yes it's just such a healthy thing so basically eating enough is linked with this lower risk of bowel cancer heart disease type 2 diabetes um, and it's usually a really filling and satisfying way of eating when we're getting enough fiber you mentioned kind of talking about stools there like is there kind of a this is going to sound weird but when people start talking about poo people get cringy but is there kind of a sweet oh <laughs> um from talking with clients some people do it's, it's really weird um is there a kind of a sweet point for the amount of stools you, stools you should have in a day? So there's a range. Everyone's a little bit different. And the normal amount is defined from three times a day to three times a week. Uh, but really, you know, from what I see from working with clients, usually most people feel best and most comfortable when it's happening at least once a day. Um, and then it usually just varies a little bit depending on obviously what people are eating and their exercise and you know there's a big connection between stress and gut motions um so yeah but if you're if you're within that three times a week to three times a day and you're not having any uncomfortable symptoms and you feel like that's okay for you then that's fine and what about is there kind of fiber targets for males and females are there different ones or are they kind of is there a universal one it's all the same actually for adults. Um, so the World Health Organization recommends 25 to 35 grams of fiber per day. Um, so what that might look like is basically at every meal and snack, you wanna make sure you're getting a good source of fiber. So for breakfast, if you have porridge and you make that on milk, you know, forget your protein in and your calcium. And then if you add in maybe a handful of berries and then you have some seeds. And then lunchtime, if you're having um, maybe like a chicken salad sandwich on brown bread and then say at dinner you have something like a chili that has extra veg and beans with that then you could reach about 30 grams of fiber from eating like that wow so yeah. it's and then you know if you have it 
basically you know more is better as long as you're not getting any uncomfortable side effects from it and you don't want to jump too quickly if you're not currently eating a lot of fiber then you can get issues with pain and gas and wind and sometimes the bowels can alter uh, too much basically if you go too quickly with the fiber so it's basically increasing it day by day by switching so kind of make one swap a day so maybe if you have white bread switch over to brown bread and once that's going okay you know add in extra portions of fruit and veg nuts and seeds gradually and that's really really good advice and are there any kind of hidden gems with kind of when it comes to getting fiber in kind of on a low cost option because i think some people are going to be a little bit more cost efficient coming out of this um, are there any kind of cheap options for kind of the fiber? Yeah, so one of the best ones would be, and one of the most handy options really is, you know, switching over to whole grain bread. Um, you'd be getting about three grams of fiber per slice. Um, then other kind of cheap and handy ones would be something like oats. I mean, and just buy the, the supermarket brand. You don't have to go for any fancy brands. Um, and that's a really cost effective one. Um, other options would be like whole grain pasta is a really good source. Um, whereas when we compare white rice to brown rice, there isn't a massive difference in the fiber content, but between white pasta and brown pasta there is. Um, so that's a good one to focus on. Um, and then making the most out of your fruit and veg as well. So where possible, if you can leave on the skins, then you're going to be getting extra fiber. Um, I actually saw a dietitian recently recommending that you can eat the core of an apple as well to get extra fiber and goodness. Haven't been doing that yet myself, um, but you can, you know, by, by having the skins on the potatoes and by washing, you know, your vegetables, carrots and things, um, you're keeping on the goodness rather than getting rid of it. That's really interesting because I've, I've seen a few people doing the, the kiwis with the skin on and stuff like that. I haven't tried it myself. Um, I'm not brave enough to try it yet, but... The apple one's interesting, but with the the potatoes and stuff, it's definitely I, I just prefer it with the skins on. I think it's from like selling from granny and stuff like that, uh, the, the old school ways. Um, talking about kind of vegetables and stuff like that, people, as you said, like eighty percent of people in Ireland aren't getting enough in, into their body and stuff like that. Is there a difference between fresh and frozen veg? And is are if any of if either of them are they are there more benefits to one of them? Yeah, so they're both really good for us, really nutritious. Basically, because a frozen veg is frozen very soon after it has been harvested, it can contain more nutrients than the fresh versions because if you think about it, the fresh versions are being picked and then they're being stored and transported and then sitting in the shop. So the whole time they can be losing nutrients, whereas the nutrients are more kind of locked in to the frozen versions. Um, so, so they are really good options and we were just talking about affordable options. They're generally much cheaper as well. Um, so it's something that I use a lot and, you know, I often, um, encourage my clients to think about, um, a lot of it does come down to taste preference. And the most important thing is make sure you're getting your seven portions of fruit and veg a day. Um, and some people just really don't like the taste or texture of frozen veg. Um, or some people can't afford fresh versions. So it's really, it's what works best for you. And some people find that a mixture can work quite well. So maybe if you have like frozen berries that you use in your porridge and then you have frozen peas and frozen stir fry mixes, and then you have some fresh, maybe spinach and tomatoes and other foods, it can help you to get that bigger variety. And again, one of the healthiest things we can do is eat a really big variety of plants. So at least 30 different kinds of plants in the week. And um, so a way of doing that is by embracing frozen options as well. That's really, really good information. I think one of the things that people 
or parents are struggling with at the minute is because they've got the kids at home um kids from experience me uh when i was a kid i didn't really like to have vegetables have you got any kind of tips on how to get your kids or other halves because i've heard of some of the clients i mainly work with females so sometimes their other halves don't really like to eat vegetables and mainly they would be the ones that would be cooking the meals or the way they've done it in their house but they're trying to kind of look after their own diet but then there's kind of a little bit of kind of restriction from the ideologies from other people if you know what i mean have you got any tips on how to encourage those people or is there any little tips you can get to kind of try and get kids or other halves to try and eat a little bit more veg so one of the best things you can do is to model that behavior so this can apply to children and to partners is basically when you're around them to be eating the veg yourself and often especially for children you know they will take on the behavior that's happening around them um, and it kind of you know it does go for children and partners that if you tell somebody you know eat this you have to eat this and you kind of are trying to guilt them or you're putting a lot of pressure on them it's going to put up a barrier so from a psychological point of view that often doesn't work um, but yeah if you adopt that behavior yourself and eventually it's you know taken little tastes and kind of investigating it gradually is what tends to lead to people actually uh, trying it and then eventually actually eating more fruit and veg. Um, some people are very sensitive to certain tastes and textures and they're quite averse to, you know, specifically um, vegetables can have a more bitter taste or they don't like stringy textures or um, crunchy textures. In that case, it's just it needs to be frequent exposure and it's you know it won't happen straight away so it's just persisting with even like little bites now and then even getting used to the veg being beside you or being on the plate um or just having even one bite at a meal that kind of frequent exposure can generally start to take down the fear and then people can start to develop a taste for it uh, but i just would encourage people not to try and pressure other people around them because that will generally just put up a barrier yeah it's yeah it's like yeah it's exactly when you're like your kid you're told to do one thing or not press the red button you're going to press a red button and yeah i can i think one of the other tools that i've kind of heard of is trying to either if people don't like the texture like i can't take i can't stand the taste of celery i don't know where it stemmed from i just don't like it but one thing that like i i try to stay away from as much as possible but one thing that some people some of the clients have been trying to do is trying to kind of get smoothies and stuff like that and encourage kind of like getting a little bit of kale doing that kind of stuff and it actually has helped them but it also helped their partners because that's their kind of little they're taking one of those kind of little nutri shots or nutri bullet shots and then that's got that that's them happy eight and that's a small little step for them and a small little win um or the other thing they're trying to do is also trying to not hide the, the vegetables in the meals but try to kind of get rid of so say, as you said with the kind of the crunch or the texture try to soften it down or put it into smaller pieces and yeah. see if that goes because i think a lot of people have i just don't like broccoli or mushrooms or seem to be the two i know i have one mate that if you go near one with a mushroom he you're going to get hit so <laughs> it's 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 mad i don't know where it stems from but um yeah you mentioned bread bread is one of those things that ha a lot of people just think that bread is very very black and white of it's bad for you um and I, this is the thing with the nutrition side of things is black and white diets don't work um and that's has to be kind of put down people's into people's heads and they have to move away from that 
what is the truth about bread and what how to get away from this stigma have you got any ideas on how to get away from this stigma i'm so glad you're asking about this because this is one of the food myths that annoys me the most is this stigma about bread so bread is a really good source of carbohydrate it's the main source of which and carbohydrate is the main source of fuel for our body for our brain um, it provides it depends on the type so if it's whole grain bread then it's also a good source of fiber as I said um, you also get about three grams of protein in a slice you know it's low in fat and um, generally not high in salt as well if it's just an ordinary slice pan no added sugar um, and it also then contains some B vitamins and you know different vitamins and minerals as well so it is absolutely a nutritious food that can be included in a healthy balanced diet and I think when it comes to foods in general we need to take away the stigma we need to stop demonizing foods and basically watch our language so saying that oh this is naughty this is a treat this is bad and those kind of words they put certain foods on a pedestal and it can start to have a damaging effect on our relationship with food so instead if we focus on the positives and you know think of all those positive nutritional things i've said about bread but also if you enjoy it you know taste and satisfaction is important as well um, and it's, it is, it's that bigger picture. So if you're having um, your, like the sandwich I mentioned earlier, like your chicken salad sandwich, um, and maybe you've got some hummus on there or some pesto or something, that's a balanced meal because you're getting your carbohydrates. And if it's whole grain, even better, you're getting your salad. So you're getting some veg in there. You're getting your protein from the chicken and then you're getting some healthy fats if you have hummus or pesto on there. And a lot of people would feel quite guilty about having a sandwich basically for a meal but there's no need to it can be really balanced it's just about you know what else are you having in your diet obviously if you're just to eat bread all day long or you know really go mad on the bread then that may not be a nutritious way of eating but you know it's it's that bigger picture and if you're having a few slices of bread it's absolutely fine yeah i think a lot of people struggle with moderation it seems to be that like restriction kind of or extremes tend to be easy and moderation seems to be quite difficult for a lot of people and i think a lot of the kind of stuff that's potentially like a stigma towards foods and stuff like that has stemmed from the media has stemmed from certain brands of diets which i will not mention i've gone on rants before and i need to be careful i think um so it, it like bread is like if you have if you have everything in moderation everything is okay um I think that's what people need to move away is that black and white thinking in general. Um, as I, like make the plate a rainbow is kind of what a lot of people say with the kind of fresh veg and stuff as well. Um, a question's kind of come in an awful lot um, in the last little while is the kind of, is there any benefit to kind of drinking lemon water? Because I know from when I was in my teens that was one of those things that kind of is it going to boost my immunity or is there going to is it going to be of any benefit and it was kind of pushed down my throat a little bit by like coaches and stuff but is there actually any real benefit to that side of things so that's a question i often get with clients as well and i've done a breakdown on my instagram of the claims and the actual science behind it so just to kind of summarize that for you and um, some of the main claims as you were saying is around um, you know, balancing the body's pH and that will just have this overall healthy effect. So that's related to the alkaline diet concept. And I don't know if you've had any rants about the alkaline diet Not yet. yet. 
it's one of my favorite diets uh, fad diets to hate on um, because it's just it's so ridiculous it's it's saying that by eating a certain way you're going to directly change the ph of your blood and then that's going to impact your overall health but of course when we're digesting food the you know the the environment in our stomach and in our intestines and things is you know quite acidic well especially in our stomach is acidic so that will change the the ph of the food you know straight away at that point and then as we digest food you know it's a more complex process it's not that if you measure the ph of your food it will directly translate to well that will be the ph of your blood or it'll change the ph of your blood so it's a really flawed pseudoscience concept and it's one of those where there's you know the grain of truth so you can measure how acid or alkaline a food is in the lab um, but that doesn't mean that it has that same impact when it's in our body. So basically, the alkaline diet is complete nonsense, and that's where some of the the advice around drinking lemon water comes from. So that's the first one that it won't change the pH of your blood or your body. And um, some of the messages as well you were saying, you know, around immunity, preventing colds, that kind of thing. So there is some evidence around vitamin C in particular, um, and lemons are a good source of vitamin C, but it's mainly about reducing the duration of a cold rather than preventing a cold in the first place. Um, and as well, the amount of vitamin C that you would get in lemon water wouldn't be very much. You know, if you were to eat the whole lemon, then that would, you know, you'd be getting a good amount of vitamin C, uh, but not many people would do that. Um, so again, it wouldn't be something that I'd be recommending on a regular basis for preventing colds. You know, it's much better to have a balanced diet and get a variety of sources of vitamin C within your diet. Um, other messages are around yeah, flushing toxins from the body, you know, kind of detoxing, that sort of thing. Again, that's another myth that we can detox our body based on what we eat. Um, so, you know, it's the job of our kidneys our gut our skin our lungs to detoxify the body and if you know if those processes aren't working you know we know very quickly we'd be getting very sick um so you know lemons aren't going to have that effect on our body and there's nothing there's no pill or supplement or anything that you can buy that's going to have that effect and the thing as well to mention is with lemon water is because it's so acidic there is actually quite good evidence that it can damage the enamel of our teeth so if you're having that on a regular basis and um, you definitely need to make sure you're rinsing your mouth out afterwards with just water um, and overall you know if you look at the the risks and benefits it's not something that I recommend um, there is a little bit of evidence in terms of kidney stones so this citric acid that we get in lemons might reduce the risk of kidney stones um, but based on that alone it's not something that I generally recommend that's re that's really interesting because I think I listened to another podcast I think it was with Danny Lennon I was talking about kind of like it's it's about kind of reducing a cold not about okay. uh, stopping it and I think a lot of people kind of reach for those kind of things a little bit late too late into the process yeah. and they kind of think that that's going to cure everything um, so I really really like that point um, one of the things that kind of comes up an awful lot is the part about kind of cholesterol um, cholesterol is on the up unfortunately um, with with kind of diets and stuff like that are out there and people's diets and people's food choices and stuff are there any cholesterol lowering foods that are out there and have you got any advice on how to lower uh, your cholesterol mm -hmm. so this is quite a big topic and if people have issues with their cholesterol it's best to get individual advice from dietitian um, 
but some of the the best things to think about in terms of our diet is the Mediterranean style diet so it has the best evidence in terms of improving heart health and overall health and um, so that would involve not eating too much saturated fat so not too much you know butter fried foods takeaways coconut oil um, and going for healthy fats so olive oil, olive oil nuts seeds having oily fish at least once a week um, again having lots of plant proteins so lots of um, like beans and lentils um, and just plants in general so lots of different fruit and veg whole grains just like we were chatting about fiber um, so they'd be some of the most important points and not too much sugar as well um, so that's really the, the healthiest approach for eating and there is some evidence that eating in that way can help to reduce cholesterol and maintain healthy cholesterol levels and then on top of that there are a few specific foods where there's an extra bit of evidence that they can be beneficial in terms of lowering cholesterol so one is soya and um, so having about three servings of soya protein a day has been found to reduce the LDL or the bad cholesterol levels uh, by about three to four percent. Similarly, having a handful of nuts a day, so about 30 grams of nuts, um, has been found to reduce LDL cholesterol significantly as well. Um, there's the oats that I mentioned earlier as well. So they have um, this type of fiber in there called beta glucan, and that's also found in barley as well. So having about three servings of this beta-glucan per day is also linked with a 5-7% to reduction in LDL cholesterol. And then we have the, the plant sterol and stanol drinks, so the little kind of yogurty drinks that you can get. Um, so regularly having about 2-3 to three grams of the plant sterols per day, so usually what you get in one of the little drinks, is associated again with a significant reduction in cholesterol. Uh, but you need to take those on a regular basis over time to see if it makes a difference and some studies find that it does for some people and it doesn't for other people it's not entirely clear um, but it's often worth a go depending on the situation that's uh, and that's really really important information um, and also with the kind of the, the first point that uh, Maeve made that is please do check with your doctor before kind of trying any of this um, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned the word soya and stuff like that people with yeah i think the soya thing is is one of those big massive things that kind of coming up oh, i was going to ask a different question but i think that's a full-blown episode on its own so i'm going to step away from that question um in relation to kind of the diet and the menopause because i predominantly work with kind of female clients um and there's menopause is one of those things that unfortunately the ladies have to go through um and it's it's it, it can be a difficult mindset change also a body change uh, from my experience from working with clients who are kind of going through perimenopause and gone through many pet or gone through menopause at this stage it is kind of a mindset thing as well but there is a lot of kind of tips and diets or tweaks to your diet you can make to kind of reduce the symptoms and to help increase health outcomes have you kind of got any key little tips that you would kind of recommend yeah definitely so around the time of the menopause it is important to think about your diet um, because certain risk factors change so um, there tends to be a higher risk of heart disease and issues of bone health as well so they'd be two key areas to think about and as we discussed there Mediterranean style diet um, can be really helpful in terms of heart health in terms of bone health 
you want to be making sure that you're getting enough calcium, enough vitamin D, protein, and um, there's some other important nutrients as well, like phosphorus, vitamin K, magnesium. Um, I've done a full blog post on that for the Food Medic Educational Hub, um, which I can give to you, uh, because again, that could be a whole topic in itself. Um, so they'd be two important areas to think about. And then for people who are struggling with symptoms of menopause, then there are a few diet changes that may help as well. So most of the evidence is around these phytoestrogens, um, and that kind of does bring us back to soya, because soya is a phytoestrogen, or contains phytoestrogens. Um, so basically it's this kind of plant version of estrogen it's kind of similar to human estrogen but it's not quite the same it has a weaker impact in our body and we have two estrogen receptors whereas the phytoestrogen only connects to one of those and um, so basically that means it just it doesn't have quite as strong as an impact as human estrogen does so basically good foods for um, increasing phytoestrogen levels are soya-based foods, as I mentioned. So that could be uh, tofu, soya milk, soya yogurts, edamame beans, um, chickpeas, flax seeds, sesame seeds as well, um, nuts, peanuts in particular, barley, um, berries, apricot, grapes, garlic. And then there are some supplements, um, but I'm, I'm probably not going to mention them specifically because I think it's important to get individual advice around that and women who have had breast cancer need to avoid those supplements as well. Um, and then tea is another source, um, but caffeine may trigger for some people, so it just depends on the individual in terms of their tolerance levels. Um, and then spice and alcohol can sometimes be triggers for hot flushes as well, so it, it's all quite individual in terms of identifying the triggers. Uh, the, you, you mentioned the soya thing again um, the reason why it came into my head um, was in relation to someone with endometriosis because there's a little mm -hmm. bit of mixed research out there with kind of soya and endometriosis and you talked about the yeah. two receptors um, because I was, wor I'm, I was working with someone and they were told flat out from a nurse not to uh, take it but it was literally just go cold turkey straight away what would you I know without you knowing all the information that was very very hard for you to kind of give a full-blown answer but what is your interpretation of kind of soya and those with endometriosis yeah as you were saying there is a bit of mixed research with that um the most important thing is not to be taking soya supplements um because they have such a high dose of soya that it's more likely to have a stronger impact basically um, so avoiding like soya, isoflavin supplements. Um, with with endometriosis, it can be individual. So yeah, it's it's not something that if someone's having a moderate amount, um, they don't necessarily need to take it out of their diet. Sometimes clients want to try without it and see if they feel any better on an individual basis. And in that case, you know that's okay if they haven't support and make sure their diet is balanced. That can be okay. Um, but based on the current evidence, there isn't strong enough evidence to say that everyone with endometriosis has to fully avoid soya. That's perfect. I just needed to back up my answer. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, in relation to, okay, the, I think the, the big topic that I was like, this could be on like 15 episodes alone, what we're going to talk about in a second. You alluded to it earlier about kind of diabetes. Um, there are two main types of diabetes. Um, can you talk about the difference between the two? how to manage the two and are there any nutritional interventions that we can make with either or sure okay so again this will be a bit of a whistle stop tour a bit of signposting <laughs> because as you said 
each individually would be a massive topic. Um, so there are two types of diabetes. We have type 1 and type 2, and there are actually a few different types as well, but the two main types would be type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, type 1 is an autoimmune condition. So it's generally, it's genetic, and it's where the body produces no insulin. So people develop type 1 diabetes usually at a younger age, and you know it's in the family, um, and it's this you know lifelong condition that they need to manage. And because the body produces no insulin with type 1 diabetes, then they need to inject insulin. Whereas with type 2 diabetes, there is a genetic component, but it's also impacted by lifestyle factors. So by diet and exercise and weight. And generally, it's that the insulin, the body becomes kind of less sensitive to insulin. The insulin isn't used properly by the body and it develops slowly over time. So often at the start, you know, people may not need any medication for type 2 diabetes. Some people can manage it just with their diet and lifestyle, whereas some people need medication and then some people actually need to take insulin for type 2 diabetes. So they'd be the main differences between type 1 and type 2. And then in terms of the dietary approaches, so for type 1 diabetes, um, the most common approach at the moment would be um, carbohydrate counting. So some people use a insulin pump and some people use injections. Um, and then it's around matching the doses of insulin to the carbohydrates that those people are eating. So, um, so they learn basically how to count the carbohydrates and then they can match their dose to the carbohydrates. Um, and otherwise, it's, it's kind of general healthy eating advice. Um, otherwise, apart from taking the insulin and accounting for the carbohydrates. For type 2 diabetes, there's, again, there's, there's a variety of evidence on this. And what the kind of the main outcome is, is the best approach is a healthy, balanced diet that somebody can sustain. And then it depends on whether weight loss is an issue or not for that individual. Um, so when we look at all the different types of diets, again, it's really the Mediterranean diet that comes out on top because the improvements in terms of metabolic health, so in terms of cholesterol levels, uh, because heart disease risk is higher in diabetes, um, and also in terms of managing glucose levels as well, um, the Mediterranean diet does tend to do best. Looking at the amount of carbohydrates can be important as well. So it's not that people with diabetes have to avoid carbs or they need to be on a very low carb diet some people with diabetes do well on a low carb diet but it's not necessary across the board um but generally it's it's bringing back the portion so that they are moderate so that they're not too big and um, so you're not spiking the insulin too much and go for low gi carbs so it's again quality and quantity so the quality side of things the low gi carbs which tend to be a lot of those high fiber versions that we spoke about, um, you know, your whole grains, sweet potatoes, another good low GI food, um, whole grain pasta, that kind of thing. So that can help to uh, make sure that the blood sugars don't spike too much and keeps them more stable. And then balancing out a meal, so having your protein and fats along with your fiber and your carbohydrates in a meal, that can help to, um, to keep the blood sugars more stable as well. And then, you know, there, there's some more evidence emerging around different approaches and different specific considerations. Um, one I think is important to mention is around the intermittent fasting, because it's something that I'm often asked in relation to diabetes. And it's something that I see people doing where they're maybe doing a, a long fast or a 16-8 diet 
um, and then they're not starting to eat until maybe lunchtime and then they have the big fast overnight and then again until lunchtime and the issue with that is is that there's more emerging evidence about circadian rhythm and diet and blood glucose levels and that actually eating most of our food in the early part of the day syncs up with our body clock with our circadian rhythm and is better for things like glucose and our cholesterol and um, so actually if somebody is considering a fasting type diet with type 2 diabetes first of all always you know get support from your doctor nurse dietitian and especially if you take medication that can actually be dangerous but again the in terms of the evidence the best approach is actually if you are doing that is to have your fast to eat your food in the earlier part of the day and then to fast later on um, because as I said it kind of syncs up with the body clock um, so they'd be some of the main points in terms of diet and type 2 diabetes and then of course you know with everything we're chatting about today it's important to put it in context that diet is one part of the equation it's a definitely an important part of the equation and it's something that we can have some control over but it's also thinking about activity levels and relaxation and alcohol and smoking and stress and the whole bigger picture. Yeah, I think it is. And I think the mindset side of things has to go with it as well from different pe- issues people have had with foods, different diets, different whether they've kind of had um, any eating disorders, which I would recommend to go and talk to a dietitian or a mental health professional on that side of things. Or if you've kind of yo-yo dieted all your life or you've had say what's kind of coming up more and more uh, on my side of things is that um, a lot of people's issues around food are stemming from their parents Um, because potentially if the mom or dad has had issues with their weight um, they are kind of as you mentioned earlier alluded to earlier it was the words that they're using aren't very they're very choice words to be to be PC but they they're very flippant with how they phrase things and how it's, have you kind of got like this is completely off the cuff uh this question and i might be putting mave under pressure here uh but have you got any advice on how to kind of work around that and kind of even kind of take yourself away from that situation of having kind of that stigma attached to it from your parents for instance it's really tricky because you know, when someone is working on their own relationship with food, we have our own internal critic that can be really unhelpful and destructive in terms of our relationship with food. But then if you have an external critic as well, then that can be quite triggering. Um, so generally, it can be helpful to just sit everyone down and just be quite honest and say, you know, this is what I'm going through. I find this helpful. I don't find this helpful. Um, you know, it depends on the relationship and whether that's appropriate or whether that will go down well. Um, but if possible, that can be a good approach sometimes then just learning techniques to kind of disassociate from it so whether it's take a few breaths whether it's you know journaling remove yourself from the situation have a few mantras um, a little note on your phone or something just to kind of keep you um keep you focused on your own goals and your own perspective um because yeah it is i mean it's a big impact on our our relationship with food is the environment we've grown up in the words that we've heard around food and around bodies as well and that's why I always encourage people um, in front of children not to be body shaming themselves or anyone else um, because little ears are listening and they're really susceptible to picking up on those kind of messages. Yeah, I, I, I really like the like the journaling. I'm a huge advocate of it. And I think so many people try to do it and then they're like, oh, it's not for me. But 
when that when, I, when people kind of say that that like that that that's their fair choice if, if it's not for them but more often than not they haven't really given it a fair chance it's kind of like they're trying to do it for like three or four days and you're like i can't get into this and it is one of those things and i really like the idea of actually sitting down and having a conversation rather than a row with yeah. your family i think particularly now everyone's been potentially locked up with their family and maybe now is not the time to do it but <laughs> I think there might be stress levels are a little bit higher. I think August can't come soon enough sometimes for some people. But um, the last question is in relation to yourself, Maeve. You've got big news coming up um, with an exciting venture that you're, you're you're going to release a book very soon. Where can people purchase that? Where can people find out about it? And what is the title of the book? So yeah, I'm very excited about this. Um, the book is Your No-Nonsense Guide to Eating Well and it takes you step by step through my top 10 tips for eating well um, and then tips around preparing meals and food shopping and snacks and then I've also included um, a chapter around my food philosophy as well so it's around being a realist rather than a perfectionist around food um, and then I have 50 meal ideas as well at the end of the book so I'm really excited to release that and um, hopefully it will be in the next few days or the next week um, but I've been saying that for about a week or two now. Um, so I can give you a link to it um, once it's released. It will be available on Amazon and I'll be sharing it on my social media, on my website. So on dietheticallyspeaking.com and my Instagram at dietheticallyspeaking. Um, so yeah, very excited about that. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to mention as well is for any nutrition professionals that are listening, um, I've started a website and a Facebook community called Nutrimote. So that's N-U-T-R-I-M, I can't even spell it, N-U-T-R-I-M-O-T-E. So it's for nutrition professionals who want to work remotely, who want to work online. Um, I've been focusing a lot on telehealth recently and I've just released a telehealth starter kit with another dietitian, Emily Foster. Um, but yeah, we have Facebook Live every week and we're just always adding different resources and we have a newsletter and things and um, so they're the main kind of things I've been focusing on as well as seeing clients and um, using video conferencing and doing a few webinars and things you've been you've been pretty busy you're putting us uh, all to shame when this locked in um but I, I will once i get the link uh off mave i will put that in the write-up so you guys can click on that if you're looking to to kind of have a look at that and purchase it i recommend following mave and recommend getting that book mave knows stuff like the back of her hand and even in like a short enough like we've been talking there for a little bit over 40 minutes for the amount of stuff the amount of detail like i've got three or four pages of notes written out um and so guys i probably would recommend probably listen to the episode again in order to get a full use about those little those little uh tips that mave has given but the most important thing is please do check with your medical professional in order to, and these aren't sweeping statements at all but please do check with your medical professional um so mave thank you so much for coming on today uh, it means a lot and i hope you stay safe and during the rest of this weird and wonderful time thanks shane same to you Guys, if you've enjoyed that episode at all with uh, Maeve, please do tag myself and Maeve up on your stories. Please do leave a review up on iTunes. The more people that kind of get to listen to this, listen to kind of moving away from the black and white dieting, talking about kind of the menopause, talking about fiber, the important fruit and veg and the kind of difference between the two and bread, kind of getting away from those stigmas the more put more people get to listen to this the more people will help so please do tag us in your stories hope you've enjoyed the episode guys and i'll talk to you very soon stay safe